Starting a company is easy. Growing a company is harder. But selling your company? That's a whole different story. In The Big Exit Show, we lift the curtain of secrecy around selling businesses by learning from ambitious and successful founders who have been on this roller coaster. Our hosts, venture capital investors Johan van Mill, the founding and managing partner of Peak, and Anke Hauskis, the founding and managing partner of NP Hard, will help you on this exciting journey. What a fascinating story we just had, Anke, with Marcus, the founder of Crossings, who sold his company after 17 years in total, with a few, with a bankruptcy on the way also, and then restarting it. I think it's fascinating to hear, let's say, his personal resiliency to, to make this e-invoicing business a real business, right? Yeah, and especially his obsession with this topic. Mm-hmm. Because uh, in the beginning, he had the market timing not right. And then, like you said, like he had to start over again. Um, but I think like if you really believe in something and you're not willing to let go, yeah. and then the moment that you decide like now might be the right time to, um, to basically step, step aside. Mm-hmm. Um, and then being right on the timing of the market, which um, he was pretty lucky, I would say. It's interesting to hear uh, how that journey went, indeed. Yeah, because at that time, a lot of I, I personally invested also in, a, in an e-invoicing company, which also went pretty, pretty good. Not as good as this one, right? So there was a lot of competitors also in this space. So I think also when you start a company, especially these days, when it's really easy to start a company, right? And also with new technologies like AI, it's easy it's pretty easy to develop your own tech. I think resiliency becomes more and more important. And as he also describes, it's a thin line also with being resilient, but also being too stubborn and sticking too yeah. long to your own ideas, right? Without pivoting or changing your business model. So I think it was a big insight yeah. for me also. Yeah. And I think one other key takeaway was uh, once you figure out like now is the time to um, sell it, to be so um, obsessed with the number that, uh, in, like selling your company and having an acquisition period of five weeks, to yeah. me, it's like crazy fast. But I guess if others really know, like, this is the price, take it or leave it, then... Um... And he put a number on it, right? He knew the number, he framed, he named his WhatsApp group, even that number, and he realized it. So it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It works. Yeah, many great insights. So um, enjoy listening. Indeed, enjoy it. Good afternoon. Starting a company is easy, but uh, growing is harder, but especially selling your company, that's a different story. Well, in the Big Exit Show, we lift this curtain of secrecy by selling tech companies and especially by talking to founders who've been in this roller coaster before. Your host, I'm your f- the founder and partner at VC Fund Peak, and my co host, Anke Huiskus, who has a little bit of a cold today, uh, is sharing for MP Heart Ventures. And today's guest is Marcus Laube, the founder of Crossings. They are the leading provider of e-voicing and are based in Germany. And they're working with the biggest, largest companies and institutions like Nestle, Bayer, but also the German national government. So welcome, Marcus. Thank you, Johan. Perhaps we can start off with uh, uh, telling how you started the company in e-invoicing, and especially in 2007, right? Because I think we all know what's happening there right now, but these days you were pretty early. Yeah. Well, that's true, uh, but actually, probably I need to to start even earlier than that because my very first company I started in the area of invoicing was back um, in '99, uh, a company called Seals, uh, which I started at the very beginning of the internet, 
Um, so internet was actually just invented and that's where it started. Uh, maybe just, uh, well, two sentences about of that first company because interesting probably for many to know, uh, that started out of Lufthansa, which was my first job after studies. And as I said, it was 98, 99. Um, and uh, at that time it was just about uh, what could we do as a company, as Lufthansa uh, with the internet? So it was just building a website. Uh, I was the first one being responsible for setting it up. Uh, and then afterwards was about, okay, what could be next? Um, more than just having uh, games on the internet, right? Uh, at that time, that was the most common thing to do. Um, and that's where I thought about uh, invoices, first of all, because I work in the area and, and the Department of Lufthansa dealing with credit cards. Uh, so it was all about invoices, about payments, etc. And then I developed the business plan to have electronic invoices uh, instead of paper, which was the common way to to send electronic invoice, uh, invoices at that time. Um, but there was not even a law in place allowing for electronic invoices. So we were really early stage. Uh, and if you remember now, 25 in Germany it will be mandatory to send electronic invoices. So that was quite a journey until now, um, but it all started back then. And was it like a spin out of Lufthansa? Or uh, kind of. How did that uh, entity? Well, the decision back then was, well, it's not a core business for Lufthansa. So if you have that idea, uh, good luck um, and uh, try to find someone else to finance the, the case, which I did uh, at that time. It was mainly financed by 3i uh, the venture capital company you might know they had a different name back back to those years but um and uh, one of the other main shareholders was accenture um and lufthansa itself remained a little shareholder um at that time and what what happened with that company market because i think you changed also the company right the structure there yeah exactly i mean uh, as i said we were really early days um and uh the specific challenge we had was bad timing, right? Um, back then, 99, the internet bubble just bursted. Um, so it was more challenging uh, in 2000 to get any additional financing. And uh, that's why we actually, after two and a half years, went into bankruptcy uh, because there was no additional financing. 3i didn't uh, continue to, to finance. And, and nobody else did. Um, so we had to close down the company in 2001, actually. And how did you do that, Marcus? Because that, that's happening, I think, now also a lot, right? Where current investors are not willing to bridge any further, right? And also are not willing to invest further. How did you deal with that? With three, because 3i is a pretty, especially also their predecessors, right? Are pretty big funds also. Uh, you had also Accenture on board, right? So money was not a problem. How did you deal, especially at that time, with that? Yeah, well, money was not the problem for, for those investors, probably, but um, they, they were not ready to, Investing uh, it. to spend it on, on that company, right? Um, and, uh, well, the, the only way we could deal with it was that I personally bought it, bought the company out of the bankruptcy myself. So uh, I was allowed to take it back. Um, we restarted from scratch um, just the, the, the next day right? um, and with just four people starting that company, 
Um, and actually the first financing we realized for that new company was based on tables and chairs because the old company was blown up to 40, 45 people pretty much at that time. And uh, when I bought the company out of bankruptcy, I got all the chairs and tables with it. And uh, as we were just four people to continue the business, I sold the remaining shares and tables and that allowed for another three, four months of financing. Um, and during that time, I ran into Tieto uh, Enator, um, a company from the Nordics, Finland and Sweden, uh, being well in that kind of business as well. Uh, and they were interested and uh, finally acquired the company uh, after four, four months. Um, and that's where I continued to work for another five years then. And I do hope that the multiple was higher than only, let's say, the sold chairs and desk, right? So that you had another multiple there also for selling the company. It, it was, but still it was kind of out of bankruptcy. So obviously there were, there were not really high multiples and then there was very limited sales at that time anyway. Okay. What was the reason for you to buy back the company, let's say, for out of bankruptcy, et cetera, et cetera, and yeah. sell it after five months? What was your, let's say, personal motivation for that? Well, I was completely convinced um, that this is the way to go, um, that at one day there will be no more paper invoices. That was pretty obvious to me um, back then, even though I completely underestimated uh, how long it would take to get there. Uh, now, I mean, it's 25 years later and, and we arrived, but uh, I expected that to happen just after maybe three or five years. So uh, I, I hardly can look at my business plan back then. <laughs> it's completely different numbers. But that was also the question that I wanted to ask. So after five years being with the acquired company, you decided to start something new again, but in the same space. So during that time, have you considered like, oh, let's start a new company in a completely different field? Or it felt like a very unfinished business you mean that you saw way more potential? You mean after working for five years at Tieto Enator, um, that, that yeah, company? Yeah. Well, actually, the uh, it wasn't the plan from the beginning um, to start yet another company. But at that time, Tieto Enator decided um, to uh, close all their business in continental Europe. Right? So they, they only focused on Nordics again. And that's why they well intended to close down the business. Uh, and, and again, I mean, this was then 2007. Um, and again, I said, well, um, the story is, is not finished yet. Right? So the decision again was to start another company, take a couple of people with me from, from the team I, I had within Tietonator, and we developed the whole thing from scratch again, um, at least with the experience we collected during the very first years. So uh, that was certainly easier to develop a new platform, but still we, we had to do it all from scratch again. Now, what were the two or three new truths, if you can say like that, when you started the company in terms of uh, what you wanted to do different this time around? Of course, like the, the market matured way more. I think we're more ready um, doing uh, e-invoicing. Well, the market obviously advanced a couple of years. So, so that was better compared to some years before. Still very early days, obviously, uh, for e-invoicing. But uh, again, I mean, I, I was convinced we will get there uh, at some point in time. What was different, we, we had some 
well, major customer that, that also um, were convinced to con continue. And they, they even promised us to continue with, with the new company. Uh, so we had one major customer and, and based on his, that promise, um, actually a Dutch customer, famous brand, um, which I won't disclose now, but, but they promised uh, to continue. And we learned the hard way that three months after we created the new company, uh, they didn't keep their promises. Right? Um, and uh, again, we had to win new customers to continue the business, find additional financing, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a, a bumpy start um, again for the second company. And, and for the second company, what was the reason that you didn't, let's say, uh, bought the assets, did a carve out of the existing business and, you know, started with that? What was the reason for you to start all over again, if I may ask? Well, that was more challenging to, to carve out completely from, from Tieto Anato, which was a large company with uh, more than 10,000 people um, at that time. So processes and, and discussions were much more complicated than taking it out from the bankruptcy a couple of years before, right? Um, so it was easier for us to start again. Uh, also, because technically we, we thought we could be more advanced uh, with the new platform uh, than building on top of what has been created a couple of years before because technology advanced, obviously, um, and, and we were building it on, on new technology. So that was one reason. Uh, and there were no, well, no real additional assets. Uh, there were no more tables and chairs that we could uh, get in that new time. <laughs> Well, I think if you if you zoom in, you see like uh, it has been like 16 years building that company. And uh, when you look at the numbers on the internet, there were 350,000 um, SMEs and over 1,600 larger corporates that have been using the product that you went over that period of 16 years. Can you take us through a few moments within the company where you see people that see like it's not a linear path where um, there was a tricky point, uh, either because of a pivot or you had to like slow down a little bit to find a new customer segment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, that could be a long story, of course, now, but um, try to, to summarize the highlights, maybe. Uh, obviously, everybody wants to hear about the hockey stick, right? Um, but it was indeed more a linear uh, development. But again, at the very beginning, the first four five years of that company were also very bumpy. Um, again, we were not lucky with timing. Uh, we started in 2007. So obviously what happened the year after was the financial crisis, which affected us quite a lot. Um, at the very beginning of the first company, it was the burst of the internet bubble. It was 9-11. Uh, um, now we started with a financial crisis. And what we realized was that during the first half year of 2009, actually, there was no single contract we could close, no revenue at all, because all companies were really uh, pushing back and uh, were not proactive in, in starting new technology, new processes, right? So, so that was really challenging um, and we had only a couple of customers thereafter that continued and and we really did it the hard way because 
um, we did e-invoicing and e-invoicing back then was driven by large buyers. Uh, large companies like, um, well, you mentioned Johan earlier, Bayersdorf, Six, etc. We were able to win a couple of those, Fresenius, um, you might know, Ebonic. And the business was like, we supported them connecting their suppliers. So we had a contract with a large buyer, but then we also contracted the many small suppliers um, to send electronic invoices to that specific buyer. And I, from the four, five people we were at the very beginning, I was the only non-technical person. So responsible for everything else, like sales, like administration, et cetera. So doing sales with all these small suppliers, I had to call a small bakery somewhere, but also large companies, et cetera. Uh, and then they started to do business paying 10 euros a month to send a few electronic invoices. But the good news was that we could also win those suppliers to become major customers for us because they started not only connecting that one specific buyer, but many of their buyers, right? Sometimes they also connected their own suppliers. So it's really a network effect that you, you could create and that we were building on and uh, developed um, a number of customers from, from that effect. And when you made the business plan and you've made by then, you made it already like two or three times. Did you take into account that flywheel effect or that like network effect? That was one of the main drivers of all these business cases. Um, but again, it often takes more time than you, than you think it would. Um, so that was the same thing. Uh, it started slowly. You need to reach a certain critical mass as well um, before it can really accelerate. Right? So typically you say at least you need like 20% of the market um, to, to make that effect really happen. So we, we just got there, right? Now it's starting to happen. Uh, but back then it was much more complex. What did you do to stimulate that effect, that network effect, right? Because as you mentioned, right, with very small customers, it's hard. Did you focus on a certain vertical? Did you focus on specific clients group? Did you, what, what did you do to yeah. maximize yeah. that? Um, well, that was one of the learnings, actually, um, back then. Um, our approach was rather we, we concentrate on large buyers, no matter the industry. So it, it was a kind of diverse portfolio of customers we, we achieved. But probably it would have been easier to focus on a limited number of industries first, uh, much more than we did uh, before starting, um, well, with, with many different um, industries, but still, we 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 did win a couple of large brands, large logos, uh, which was good, um, and and still could take it from there uh, to be finally to become the largest invoicing provider in Germany. But one more thing uh, that that we didn't do was expanding into different geographies, uh, which might have been an additional solution because Germany is not known as very uh, service provider friendly. There are many companies trying to do things on their own. And, and there are other countries like the Netherlands, like UK, uh, etc., where more than 90% of all invoices are managed by service providers. In Germany, the, the number even today is probably less than 30%, to give you an idea. Yeah, it's a debate that we often have with German companies, right? Because the country is so big 
to build a standalone company, right? And what's the right moment then to internationalize, right? If at all, if the market size yeah. is, if it's really needed from a market size perspective, right? Did, did you internationalize crossings? Because we, we go through the exit later, but what was your, let's say, your international position uh, when you were acquired? Um, at the very end, uh, we were active in Switzerland, apart from Germany, uh, mainly with an own company. Um, and just a couple of days before we were acquired, we acquired a company in Hungary ourselves. So that was, uh, but, but apart from that, the, the main focus remained Germany. And can we start talking about how that acquisition happened? Because we read somewhere that you got in touch with the acquirer because of uh, your EESPA. I hope I pronounced that right. Can you take us through like how that relationship started and how it evolved over time? The relationship with Unified Post specifically? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, over those 16 years, we had a couple of uh, financing rounds, obviously, um, because it, it still needed additional financing. Um, the existing shareholder structure, one of the learnings we had from, or I had from, from my first company, not to rely too much on venture capital if possible, because they're rather short-term oriented. And I knew from the beginning it's a B2B business, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Um, and that's why I specifically look for long-term oriented investors. So it was much more like, let's say, friends and family, um, which, well, resulted in a, quite a number of shareholders. So more than 20 different shareholders at the very end, um, but uh, all very loyal and um, positive when it comes came to our business. Um, and, uh, but anyway, we, we had to, to do some financing in between first time we went break even was in 2013. Uh, so we knew it's possible to become break even, but we also knew it's still a network business. So you need to, it's a first mover business. You need to be ahead. You need to have the largest network in order to reach those network effects. That's why we decided to still invest in the company, not staying uh, break even necessarily, but to invest additionally. And that's why we partly looked into, into those possibilities. And the very first contact, um, not sure if I'm completely right, but that was already three or four years before the actual acquisition. Uh, Unified Post was not yet listed on the stock exchange in Belgium back then. But, well, they just um, checked different possibilities. Uh, I always denied uh, because it was not our intention to sell the business at that uh, time. Um, we still had the ambition to, to grow, uh, to make it bigger. And then Unified Post became a public company in uh, 2020. Um, and that, well, obviously allowed them to pay additional amounts, right? Um, when it became more interesting to, to have a chat. So uh, taking one small step back, so you mentioned that you finance a company with friends and family, right? The, the, the 20 people on your cap table, right? So did you raise any professional capital at all anymore with, uh, with crossings in this case? Um, 
not really. The only thing we did is to have um, that we had a fund of uh, KfW, Kreditanstalt für Wiederaufbau, which is a state-owned mm -hmm. uh, bank in Germany, yeah. uh, which supported based on other investors. So they paid the same amount uh, like other investors did. Uh, but that's it. Nothing else. Yeah. And what did you, Marcus, what did you raise in total? I read somewhere 500k, but I don't know if that was correct, right? In total for the company to, to fund its operations. 500k for crossings in total? Yeah, yes. No, that was much more. Yeah, much more, right? Can you say something about, I say, capital, what you raised with your family and friends and with, I think, the doubling with the KFW? Well, it was somewhere between 5 and 10 million. 5 and 10 million euros. Okay. Yeah. And does Thank it also you. mean that you didn't have a. The data that we have is not always fully correct. So. Does it also mean that you didn't have a board uh, of advisors <laughs> or a board of directors? So that was basically the. Like, I'm curious about the. Board. Okay. The decision making we had process. A board of directors, uh, four people in that board. Uh, well, still uh, friends and family, if you want, but um, which was actually crucial um, because uh, it, it was well, someone to, to resonate your business, right? Because that was sometimes challenging with your own employees. So it was good advice uh, many times, uh, two very good friends, uh, which is sometimes also challenging, were part of that board because you mix kind of private and business life. Um, but the, well, they, uh, they were part of the, the story from the very beginning and along those 16 years, it always went well, uh, obviously some ups and downs, but uh, we're still very good friends, obviously. <laughs> so uh, friendship survived the, this roller coaster. Yeah. How, how, do you, how do you deal with that, Marcus? Because it's something what I recognize a lot, right? That people have their own friends on the cap table and work with them and then have them on the boards. And sometimes then you run into the problems that you logically not always agree, right? How do you deal that, let's say, in a personal way with that situation? What what can you perhaps let, uh, share from that perspective? Well, I think the most important thing was to be transparent, not trying to hide anything from, from business. Um, so we were really open discussing the different uh, topics and challenges. Uh, we, we met virtually or personally almost every two weeks uh, to discuss things and topics. Um, so everybody was in line and, and uh, was aware of what happened. Uh, and I think that's a very strong relation that you build based on that. Do you also use the rule of thumb, what I hear sometimes, uh, when business, then we talk on business, but when we see each other private, then we don't talk business. Is it, uh, does it also work for you that way well, also with your friends? I think that's easy to say, but obviously that doesn't really work all the time, right? Um, it, it's unavoidable that you that you mix the two. From time to time, of course, if you if you meet with others, then uh, we, we didn't talk about business. But uh, if you even if you meet privately with those, you you always discuss the business as well. Unavoidable. Yeah, yeah. After the same experience, indeed. Yeah. And during that period of tr um, the acquisition, because previously previously you said something along the lines of uh, that you wanted to grow organically on your own terms, or that you didn't want to. So did something change in the market or the way the company was growing or because you smelled that the acquisition price must go up because now um, they went public. So, or was it a combination of those three? So what happened um, when you decided to take 
this route and take the meeting and, and explore acquisition further? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, now I'm 55. Back then, I obviously was 52. So that's probably also the time when you think about when would you like to benefit from all you invested during your whole life? I mean, um, I invested almost six, but no, 25 years in that business already uh, without getting anything back financially. And um, then you need to think about whether you still want to continue, go the next step, um, or think what would you like to get back from the business really? What is your expectation? Uh, what is the right number to, to get out of it and, uh, well, and do something differently? And uh, it, it still wasn't at, well, wasn't what we really tried to do. So we, we didn't go to the company trying to sell it at the very beginning. We were still, it was part of the financing round discussions with different people about additional financing, but actually they started the discussion whether uh, it wouldn't be a possibility uh, to have um, an acquisition. And only then we really started to think about, to be honest. Um, so it wasn't really a long-term strategy and now it's the best timing to do. Uh, it just happened on the way. Uh, to be very honest. But to better understand, so when you were saying like they started the conversation, well, was it that you were talking to other VCs for additional financing and they were one of the potential parties to provide financing or these were two different topics and they heard in through the grapevine, like these guys are raising a new round, this is the moment to come in and, and acquire. So how did that work? Well, it was actually coincidence. Um, we talked to different financial institutions about the additional financing. Um, but then, as I said, we, we started discussions with Unified Post already three years yeah. back. So it was just another call. So we, we talked to each other like once a year and you know, are things going, et cetera. Um, uh, so they were not aware of that uh, financing activity that we had at that time. Yeah. And if I can ask so bluntly, because you were saying like, it seems that you took a step back and figure out like uh, what will be for me, like, and also the money, did you have a certain number in your mind? So when you had the conversation, you basically said like, okay, guys, this is it. Or how did that work? Yeah. Yeah, pretty exactly. That's how it worked. Oh. <laughs> so um, uh, I had a number in mind for me personally, but also in combination with the main shareholders. Um, we even called our WhatsApp group, um, was called the, the, that number, right? Um, and, and that what made it also easy for any negotiation because that was just what we expected. Um, and, and, we, and we didn't change that uh, expectation during the whole conversation. So, Marcus, when you were talking with, uh, uh, with, uh, sorry, with your potential buyer, right? At the same time, you also had the talks with financial institutions, right? Can you elaborate a, a little bit how that was going, especially having the two trajectories on the same time? Well, we um, started both in parallel, um, but at one point in time, we decided to only continue the talks with Unified Post. Um, so we we were optimistic that if we would go for additional financing, we could still take that path uh, and find additional financing. 
but we were concentrating on the unified post deal uh, exclusively at, at some point in time. What was the reason for that, that you fully focused on that? Was it well, it was just uh, exhausting to have those detailed discussions, obviously. Um, and, and that was also something Unified Post asked us to do uh, at some point because uh, they also invested quite heavily in, in due diligence, etc. obviously. So just for you to imagine, there were like 30 to 40 lawyers, uh, business people, etc. from Unified Post involved the whole time for five weeks and well, for us, it was just two or three people, right? So, so that was really uh, exhausting to have those discussions. But we we concluded the whole uh, process within five weeks, which uh, I think is also exceptional. Yeah, indeed. That's not normally that takes more time. And what's then the moment uh, to elaborate a little bit on this when you started to talk exclusively, right? Because that's what I also recall from an investor, right? You have different options on the table, and at a certain point, you have to place your bets, right? And then you know, should know also what's happening there. What was the moment that you realized that Unified Post was, was let's say, the go-to path? Yeah. Uh, well, there was obviously an indicative amount um, that they were ready to pay, um, well, without any due diligence already yet, uh, of course, but um, that amount appeared positive to us. <laughs> and uh, there was also one other company actually that uh, was ready to pay the same amount. But the reason why we have chosen for Unified Post was that we felt it, it would be a very good match uh, with the businesses uh, that we had between Unified Post and Crossings because Unified Post was more with the small customers, Crossings focused on mid-size and large companies. Um, Unified Post was very active in the area of payments, whereas we really focused on invoicing. So that, that seemed to be a very good match, and that's why we decided finally to um, process exclusively with UPG. I'm trying to place myself in your shoes, creating that WhatsApp group with like, hypothetically, like the 100 million WhatsApp group deal, the million deal, and then like going through these um, conversations. Like, what was, can you take us through, like, officialize the moment when the deal came together and, like, who was there? Um, yeah. How was that moment celebrated, basically? So when, when we finalized yeah, yeah. When you, the signed yeah, agreement. Yeah, signed agreement, when, the, when there was no way back and things were signed and sealed, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that was obviously a strange situation um, because that's when you realize uh, to some extent uh, you fully only realize months later, but uh, that you, to a certain extent, realize you need to let go. Yeah. A company that you have built like for 13 years, uh, which is quite quite a long time. We we had by back then we had like more than 200 people employees in in different countries. Um, not to forget to mention Moldova, which was not a business uh, we did in Moldova, but we had a lot of nearshoring validation people in, in Moldova. So it was really a, a huge family, actually. And um, you need to decide whether that's not only for yourself, but for everybody else, a good decision to make. And, and you need to understand where are they going? What would, will their place be in the new setup? Uh, because obviously for them, it, it's not about the amounts. It's about uh, what will be the new structure, what will be the new possibilities for myself uh, with all the 
insecurity that they have uh, during that time as well, right? So that that was, I mean, I always try to be very transparent with everybody in the company about business issues, etc. But for those four weeks, uh, we had to limit that information to just two, three people, um, not to create uh, uncertainty, because obviously if it goes wrong, uh, you still need to do business, right? And um, that, that, that was challenging, obviously. But at the very end, was we were like, let's say, four main shareholders in the company, um, and three of them were present for, for signing. Two of them uh, were, well, very good friends of mine as well. Uh, so we did a little celebration after signing in, in the hotel. Um, but uh, yeah, it was kind of un, unreal. The, the feeling was uh, a bit unreal during that time. But still, you, it's also a release to some extent. Yeah, because in the end, it was what you wanted, right? Like uh, when you take us through, like uh, you basically make the decision, the decision like now it's time to let go or yeah. like... Uh... However, you realize you had to sacrifice so many things during um, 25 years, uh, whether it's, uh, well, having fun and pleasure, but also family. It was certainly a challenge for, for my family as well. So finally saying, okay, now we, I can pay back to some, some extent as well. Because you mentioned you realized, let's say, two months later also, right? What, what, what at that time, what did it do with you, let's say, personally and also emotionally? Because we learned also with other founders, it can be a real celebrating moment, right? But we also had other people in the same podcast here who literally cried and went back to the family and re really uh, took a time uh, rest. How, how did you personally deal with that? Uh, well, we didn't celebrate too much, to be honest. I, I didn't even pause the business. Um, we continued the business just the day after. So, we, well, we only went to Mallorca three days with, with the families and, and the main shareholders. That was our uh, little celebration. But over a weekend, more or less, and then Monday, business continued again because we said now it's the, the real work and then to do integration, migration, uh, et cetera, et cetera, with the new setup. And uh, the, very, the real emotion actually just happened a couple of weeks ago because uh, now I did the exit after exit, um, leaving Unified Post um, and, and really leaving uh, the Crossings family, yeah. uh, which was much more emotional uh, compared to three years ago. And I think also for them, because you're still listed on the website, right? So I think it's also, they also still have still uh, some intense uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, True. But also for you to, from like a founder, CEO, to then like chief sales officer, which is not the CEO and the, uh, the and decision maker, to now like being a team of one again. Like, um, and it might be a little bit of a personal question, but because people often identify themselves so much to what they do work-wise, was it for you like that first phase to become like the chief sales officer reporting to somebody else? I'm curious how that was for you when you're not being the one to call the shots and now like uh, having to do it by yourself, uh, basically with your new consultancy um, firm. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, it's obviously a different thing and a different way to work uh, if you're no longer the CEO. Uh, nevertheless, I was part of the, the management team being responsible for, for the main decisions. 
and it was a good fit with with those colleagues as well. I mean, uh, there was still a story to tell, a story to to develop jointly. Yeah. Um, so um, we wanted to realize what we thought about the acquisition when we started it, and and we're still about to do unified post is still about to do it. Still, uh, some more integration migration needed. So that was positive. It was a good cooperation. I think was good fit with unified post for crossings as well in general. On the other hand, uh, yes, you're, you're not the CEO. Not all decisions are taken by yourself. So that's something you need to realize as a person. If you're independent for 25 years and now start to uh, report to somebody else, uh, it's a different story. Um, and, and that's why I finally also said, okay, maybe not the right story for me at that point in time. I need to go back to more independence uh, again. Um, and that's why I took over the company Belentes, which is a consulting company uh, from Switzerland, but uh, more or less working on my own again. Shall we, shall we go to the exit valuation? Is that an idea given the time? Anker. Yeah. On to the valuation bet. Crossing's acquisition by Unified Post Group was announced in April 2021, 13 years after its creation. Before that, the company only raised a 500k euro seed round in 2009. It was a very easy valuation estimation as the acquisition amount was made public, 100 million euros with 50% in cash and 50% in newly issued Unified Post shares value at 20 euros per share. Then, in trying to guess the revenue multiple of that acquisition, the process was also eased by the Unified Post annual report. Indeed, as a public company, it publishes a yearly report providing detailed financial information. On the crossings topic, the 2021 report listed that since the purchase in April 2021, the revenue from its acquisition was 4.336 million euros. If we were to do a pro rata on the year to add the previous four months of 2021, the total revenue estimation would be 6.51 million euros for 2021. It would imply a multiple of 15.4 based on the 2021 revenue. However, the acquisition was most likely made on the 2020 revenue, and one can assume that the revenue was then a bit lower, hence with an even bigger, bigger multiple. It will definitely make sense with the end of the 2020 context, which was an all-time high, as shown by a SAS Capital Index valuation multiple, training in a fairly narrow range of 14 to 16 times the revenue. So what do you think? So the first comment I would make is um, that the 100 million was not the final amount. Uh, you might have realized that there was an earnout agreement, which has been realized uh, two years ago, which made the overall amount something like 125 million. On the other hand, with your uh, calculations concerning the revenue, that was too low. That means uh, in return, the multiple uh, that you assumed was too high now. Still um, still a very good multiple on, on sales. Uh, that, that's what I can disclose. And, and again, it's all about timing. Uh, I think three or six months later, uh, we wouldn't have achieved the same multiple yeah because of overall market situation yeah we discussed many things is there something that we didn't ask you like i have questions about uh we saw somewhere that um the future and innovation <laughs> more on ai and blockchain i would 
we can go into that. But is there anything that we didn't dis- discuss, but which is uh, interesting for other founders listening to this podcast to learn? Yeah. Well, probably we discussed quite a lot already. On the other hand, with 16 years, that there would be more to discuss. But um, uh, maybe two things which I thought were relevant uh, to achieve the multiple we just discussed. What we also did is really concentrate on different geographies, being the leader in the Dutch region, uh, more specifically, which was challenging because of the low use of service providers in the area. But on the other hand, everybody else as an international service provider wanted to cover the Dutch region, obviously. And that was obvious. At some point in time, someone will need to contact us to become the European yeah. leader, worldwide leader. And that was driving the, the, the multiple, uh, certainly as well. Yeah. Right. And, and then um, you need to be persistent if you want to grow such a business. Uh, so that's one of the things we were good at, I think. On the other hand, it's of course always, uh, well, there are two sides of the coin. Um, if you're getting too persistent, it can, get, can go wrong. Um, so you need to find the right timing to let go. And even though there are more opportunities for invoicing in the future, you mentioned new technology, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there's much more that, that will happen. But we thought at that time, um, the valuation is, is already very good because there's still many service providers around. At some, uh, in a couple of years, it will be uh, only a few ones that, that um, will remain, yeah. just like in telecommunication, for example, right? Today, we have 700 to 1,000 service providers in Europe. Uh, so there will be heavy consolidation and, and that's why prices are also high uh, to, to acquire service providers. Yeah. yeah, you have the timing right. I think long enough persistence to get to a point and I think the realization like now is probably the right time to let go yeah. and then a, a number. We were, we were wrong with timing so many yeah, times. Yeah. Uh, this one time we were yeah, right. Yeah, which was a pretty <laughs> crucial time. Good. No more questions from my end. I don't know, uh, Johan, do you have a, a final question? No, thanks, Mark. I think it's a great story. I'm really impressed, especially about the resilience that you took, right? In starting a company, buying it back, selling it, then buying, sorry, starting a new company, getting new shareholders, and then building that for 13 years in an exit, and then staying there for a few years, and then now starting again a new company, right? So I like that resilience a lot. I I think it's really needed, especially these days, right, to start. So it's, it's indeed a thin line between timing and also being focused and being on the ball and being uh, believing it. So I really like the story. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you, Anke. Thank you, Johan. See you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Big Exit Show. We hope you enjoyed today. If so, please subscribe to our show on Spotify or your favorite podcast platform. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests that you want to see on the show, please send us a message to podcast at peak.capital. Thanks again for listening and hope you join us for the next episode.